Someone wrote a book about the magic of teamwork. And in that book about this matter of teamwork, he told about a guy by the name of Chad Sharon. Now, Sharon was a basketball player at Vanderbilt University. And he came up with uh, what the writer of the book thought was a great metaphor describing the interaction of individuals and teams. And the metaphor doesn't come from the world of sports, even though he was on the basketball team, but it comes from his pre-med studies at Vanderbilt. And uh, here's what he said. He observed that the various cells of the human body, muscle cells, blood cells, organ cells, bone cells, all others, are designed to work together to enhance the health and life of the entire body. Each cell is a part of the body's team. But there's one kind of cell that can create enormous problems for the body. It's a cell called a mutagen. A mutagen, he observes, is a cell that has stopped acting like its pure cells and just grows for its own sake. Just as mutagens cause cancer in the human body, people who behave like mutagens can have a cancerous effect on a team. Now, I think the application for working together is apparent in the illustration. It's a, it's a good point. But there's something else. It reminds us that in many a body, there are mutagens. There are corrupt cells that ruin the whole. In our world, there are my word, mutagenic people. And although we, no, we're not going to mention any names, and I'm not getting in trouble tonight. I'm not mentioning any names, all right? There's no one in our church that would be that way anyway. But there are people who not only ruin teamwork, but they're utterly corrupt, and they destroy those around them. Often we want to ignore them. Sometimes we like to believe they don't exist, but they do and as I was reading through the gospel accounts of the, um, the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ around Easter, as, um, as I actually sought to do what Dr. Bear said he did every year, um, it was interesting to me to come to Matthew chapter 26, a passage we've already preached and look at, looked at, and see some uh, mutagenic people. And they're people that often we ignore in the story of the death the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ because we want to focus on the most important thing, which is the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We want to focus on him. In fact, many times when we look at Matthew 26 and 27 and 28, when we look at the end of each one of the Gospels, we focus on them or we focus on people who have, um, uh, like the apostles or uh, the disciples of Jesus Christ who failed him, or we look at uh, maybe some of the ladies that were involved with the resurrection story or even around the cross. And we focus on them, but we fail to see that there are people actually mentioned more often than anyone else that were mutagenic people. And so this evening, I'd like to do this. This is, this is our uh, Easter Sunday night service since I didn't get to preach. I got to make up for it. All right? So, I know Brother Deals did, did a fine job, all right? But this is our Easter Sunday night service that I had prepared, although um, I, I just wasn't, I guess I could have just, um, I don't know, gotten online and we could have put a nice picture of me up or something. <laughs> yeah, well, we're glad Brother Deals did what he did, all right, in helping us out. But uh, I'd like you to see the mutagenic, mutagenic, woo, wow, mutagenic people in the gospel account, and, um, and I hope you'll be challenged about it. It's not a message that you necessarily uh, like to look at because we don't like to look at bad people. And yet, it was amazing to me as I read through the story how often uh, these people are mentioned and how greatly they impacted the work of Jesus Christ and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And they warn us, they teach us how cancerous people affect the whole. And quite honestly, I see a great tie to what's going on in our society today. Quite honestly, we have a bunch of mutagenic people who are running our government right now, who are making decisions that are cancerous, they're destructive to the whole. And we need to 
realize that these people do exist and we need to understand somewhat how they work. So though this may be a very strange message in the sense that you don't usually preach on something like this, I'd like you to take a different look at the cross and see the groups of people who were involved with the death of Jesus Christ and his burial and his resurrection because they had a part in each one of those things, although they were cancerous and destructive. But what's wonderful and wonderfully encouraging is God used even them because without them, we don't have the crucifixion. And so, uh, let's, let's take a look at and learn a lesson on humanity by looking at and doing a, a, a people study, okay? So, I do have some outlines here that I guess we have one young man that jumped up. Thank you very much, Luke, for that. And you can call it a lesson on humanity. Oh, another young man jumps up. A lesson on humanity or learning from mutagens. If you want to put that, I, I like the title. I like the word mutagens, mutagenic. Isn't that, that just like flows for you. All right, so uh, what we want to do first is understand the people. And, and also, I want you to understand their, their position. Uh, though found throughout the New Testament ministry of Jesus Christ, They're introduced into the crucifixion narrative in Matthew 26 and verse 3. And if I could, I just want someone to read it for me. Someone do that? If you're there in Matthew 26, someone read verse 3. Go ahead, Brother Murphy. All right, very good. Thank you. We have described for us some mutagenic people. All right, so... So who are they? You can go ahead and write them in as they're, as they're found there. But who are the groups of people that were totally cancerous, if you would, to the ministry and life of Jesus Christ? Chief priests? Someone else? Come on, it's right there in front of you. You're writing it in, right? All right, the scribes? And the elders? Now, what are they doing in Matthew 26 and verse 3? They're gathering together to get rid of Jesus. Here's this one who who they believe to be a false teacher, and they want to get rid of him. They're trying to do an extremely evil thing. Now, that may not shock you, but really it should because of who they were. Now, I want you to think about this because it didn't really hit me until I started to study out a little bit about these three different groups of people. And and if you really take time to ponder this, it makes, quite honestly, what they did in Matthew 26, 27, and 28 all the more egregious. Because these were people who should have known better. These were people who should have done differently, but they were evil. In fact, I think they're described in the book of Proverbs with the term scorner. They were people who were not believers in God, even though these men would all have claimed to be believers in God and followers of God indeed. But let's talk about the, the, these three groups. The chief priests. Merrill Unger, 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 Unger has a Bible dictionary, and he expresses uh, a number of different things. He deals with each one of these people, but he expressed the important job of a priest Here's what he said, the idea of a priest stems from the fact that men are conscious of their sinful nature, and they need someone holier than they are to approach God, to hear from God, and to, in a way, connect them with God. The priest in biblical times did that very thing. These leaders of men offered sacrifices. They provided access to God in a way. They were supposedly the holiest, the most godly, the most in touch with God men in the whole land of Israel. Does that make what happened here in this passage all the more amazing? Considering their vital ministry of connecting men with God, you would think they would be in tune with God themselves. And that makes this story, to me, all the more appalling because they are found and mentioned more than any disciple is mentioned. 
They are found and mentioned more than anyone else, and they are active in every step of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. They're there at the cross. They are involved in getting him to the cross. They are there after he's, he died and he's buried so that they keep him there. They are involved after, after the whole resurrection story in covering up the matter. And so here are men who are supposedly helping people get in touch with God, trying to keep people from God. Isn't that amazing? And by the way, it tells you something about false religion as well. Then we find the scribes. All right, who were the scribes? What was a scribe? Anyone know? I mean, why were they called scribes? Just basically. Okay, they copied the scriptures. Their, their responsibility was the protection of the word of God. In a sense, they didn't protect the word themselves. God did that. God has preserved his word throughout all generations, and I'm thankful for that. But the scribes were used to do that very thing. Now, some call them copiers of scripture. Hey, I mean, they didn't have Xerox. Okay, they didn't have uh, the, the printing presses of our day. That wasn't until Gutenberg, right? And so, uh, quite honestly, uh, there was no way to preserve the, the word of God, the written word of God, without people to do that. But listen, the scribes were not just copiers of Scripture. They did copy the sacred writings painstakingly. It's amazing what scribes, many scribes went through in order to copy the Word of God. And there are many things that they did even in the copying of the Word of God to, to promote accuracy. In fact, they would spend hours copying out the Scriptures. And by the way, whenever they came to the Word God, one of the reasons why it's, it's we say Jehovah, uh, they would just write the consonants. And it was because His name was so holy and they would take a new writing utensil and write that name and then they would destroy it and they would get another one when they wrote God's name again. Do you understand how many times God's name is mentioned in the Old Testament writings that they were copying? And that's just one of the many things that they did. But beyond that, they were experts in Mosaic law. They knew the law of God intimately, clearly, and many times in society, they were called upon to render verdicts about right and wrong. They were considered like a jury so that people who had issues or people who were, uh, who were in trouble or people who thought someone had done something wrong, they would many times come to a scribe. A scribe would hear it out, and you know what a scribe would do? He'd say, this is what the law says. Here's what they did, and here's how they violated the law, or they obeyed the law of God. They were the ultimate authority about the law of God. Does that make this amazing? It does to me. Because when I started to think about these people, here are people who are supposed to know the law. And do you know what happens in Matthew 26, 27, and 28? All the way through, they were men. These men were ignoring the law of God. It is an amazing thing to see. And so these scribes should should have been able to render a verdict about appropriate action in light of God's law, and it boggles the mind to see these men violating command after command to destroy someone who had never done them wrong and whom they could not prove ever did anything wrong himself. And then I want you to think about the elders, this third group of people. Who were the elders? They were older men. But the reason they were called the elders, and there was a, a body of them, a number of them, is because they were especially respected and revered in Jewish society. And the reason they, they were is because they, weren't, they were identified with mature wisdom and experience. The elders took care of the management of public affairs in Jerusalem because they were deemed to have insight and wisdom that would cause them to direct people right and do the things that are right. In fact, that it would be even true, at least to an extent today. One would expect an elder to behave themselves in accordance with truth and in a manner befitting someone who has wisdom. So think about that in light of what's happening in Matthew 26. And, and, and quite frankly, I, I, when I 
when I started to dig a little bit deep, more deeply into who these people were and what they represented, it makes the events of the cross and what they did um, just unbelievably horrible. And it's, it's, almost, um, it's almost scary to think that someone could be so wicked and yet so revered and thought of as someone who was good and right and moral and decent. There would not have been many Jews in that day who would have looked down upon these men, any of them. And by the way, one of the reasons they didn't like Jesus is because he told the truth about them and revealed them for who they really were. Now, these men, again, were important to Jewish society, but this, this was the best Israel had to offer. And the best Israel had to offer killed an innocent man. Um, and that should also, if you would, help us understand how depraved the human heart can be. So consider their perversion. Now, now, if we could do this, again, a little bit different, but I'd like to just kind of walk through, and I want you to see what's going on and what they did. So in your cha- here in chapter 26, we already read verse 3. What, did we, what do we find in verse 4? They consulted... And what did they want to do? You tell me. All right, they wanted to take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. By means of what? My, by means of de- deception? Uh, by, in ways that wouldn't be noticeable so they could get away with it? Because what they knew what they were doing was wrong. And so they, I, I just put it this way, uh, there's no alliteration, sorry. They schemed. They were scheming people. They got together to come up with a plan to trick, to deceive, or trip up the Son of God. By the way, we, we know that earlier. They had done that over and over, and they tried, and they kept falling falling fat, flat on their face. I loved it when, love it when, when some of these leaders, some of these God, supposedly God, godly men come up and talk about, about uh, giving tribute to Caesar, which would have put Jesus at odds with just about everyone in that day because no one liked paying taxes then. It's nothing new, people. And the Jews especially hated the Roman government. Um, and so he try, they try to pit him, and Jesus Christ answers... You render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. And over and over, different groups of religious people would come up to Jesus and try to trip him up in his words and catch him in his words. Uh, You can read one example in Matthew 22, not now, but some other time, verses 15 to 40. And you can find numerous times they persisted in trying to trip him up. And now, rather than if you would trip him up, now what they want to do is entrap him and take his life. So they schemed. If you look in chapter 26 and verse 5, we read something else about these people. They, they wanted to take him subtly, and they wanted to get rid of him. They want to kill him. But notice something about their decision. In verse 5, what are they worried about? Okay? They're worried about themselves. We're more concerned about what might happen. They're worried about results and not about right. Put that down. So they schemed, and then we find that they were worried about results and not about right. They determined it wasn't going to happen during the Passover, which is great because it happened during the Passover. And there's a reason why it needed to happen during the Passover. Uh, Not the least of which, at least many seem to argue, that if Christ was going to be in the grave uh, three days, then they're going to have to be two Sabbaths in a row. And there were. Because the Passover was considered a Sabbath, as far as Jews were concerned. 
and, and Christ died as the Passover lamb. There, there's a beautiful picture uh, given in, in Scripture, and it had to happen then, but they were saying it won't happen. They were more worried about results, and the reason they were concerned about this is because they were going to hurt their own position before the Roman government with whom they had to exist. So it's not about this group concerned about doing what's right. They're concerned about how it's going to look and how it's going to appear and whether this is going to cause an uprising that might cause problems with them and the Roman government, and they don't want problems with that. Look, if you went in chapter 26 and read in verse 14, when, we, when one of the 12 called Judas Iscariot went unto who? Chief priests, and said unto them, What will you give me, and I will deliver him unto you? And they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver, and from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. They paid a man to sell him out. They paid a man to sell him out. The opportunity they desired was presented to them when one of the disciples came offering to betray him. But here's the thing. We have no indication Judas ever asked for anything. If you want to argue the point, he probably did ask, and the reason we would probably believe that to be the case is because he was the one who had the money, and he had been dishonest with the money already. And he was all about money. But... Um, the, the fact of the matter is that they were willing to offer it so that they could take his life. So they paid a man to sell Jesus out. Um, now, maybe they, maybe again, he required it, but they were willing participants. And uh, if you read what some say about these verses, some say they took money out of the treasury in the temple to pay. Judas, to betray God. That is an amazing thing. Now, can we prove that? I don't know, but, but uh, uh, you know, it's amazing that they, the idea is they very well took the Lord's money to purchase an opportunity to get rid of the Son of God. All right, no, number, number four. In chapter 26 and verse 51, it's interesting. When Judas comes to betray him, and he does so with a, with a kiss. They laid hands on Jesus, it says in, at the end of verse 50. They took him, and behold, one of them which were with Jesus, uh, Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priest and smote off his ear. Now, that sounds really wonderful, I know. But uh, I, I put it this way. They sent minions to do their dirty work. That's not minions, okay, as you know it today, but they sent minions to do their dirty work. These men didn't have the guts to, to stand up to him themselves, so they sent people. And you can read in Mark 14, 43, it says, uh, Judas, one of the twelve, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Uh, now, most writers will say, Roman soldiers were part of that. But there also is indication that it was just the servants of these men. Truth is, had it just been Roman soldiers, there's a good chance that when one of the soldiers' ear was cut off, they would have taken the lives of everyone. So these were not men that were hired necessarily to protect Roman government. These were men that these chief priests didn't have the guts to go themselves. So they said, well, we're going to let someone else do our dirty work. And, um, and I, it just shows you how evil these men truly were and how perverse they were in their, in their uh, lives. Um, in chapter 26, look at verse 57. And they that laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders were assembled. Uh, verse 59, the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death. When is this going on? Throughout the night. And so we can tell you the truth. Old Testament law forbid court sessions in the middle of the night and as well using false witnesses to bolster their case. We'll mention that in a moment without success. They ignored the law. 
They ignored the law. Okay, so they ignored the law here. And look at verse 6 in chapter 27. And what do we find? Okay, so they ignored the law earlier because it, it fit them well. And now what do we find in the next chapter all of a sudden? Wow, we're concerned about the law again. Isn't that amazing? You know, they weren't concerned about the law in many different ways. They ignored Jewish law when it, it um, if you would, when it suited them. But what is great about that whole thing is if you read in verse 9, it was, it was because God needed to fulfill something. That 30 pieces of silver couldn't be put back in the treasury. And, and does anyone know why? Look at the verse and tell me. All right, because it's the price of blood, I understand that. But why was it so important that it couldn't go back in the treasury? Okay, all right, because it was spoken by Jeremy the prophet. So what do, we, what do we know then? Okay, they, they, are you right there? You're right there. Why? Because, look, Scripture wouldn't have been fulfilled. Christ wouldn't have fulfilled everything about him if they put the money back in the treasury. It had to be spent on a potter's seal because the prophet said, that would be the case. And so God used their concern for the law there. God used their lack of concern for the law as well. That's a great truth. Uh, in chapter 26 and verse 59, what did they do? Again, think about this. Chief priests, elders, all the council, all the godly men of Israel. What were they looking for? You know, you know, seriously, I, I, I have been looking at what's going on with the government, I've been looking at uh, all sorts of things, and it boggles the imagination how evil people can be. You read historical record about what's taken place in, in many different, what, what Hitler did, what many other uh, leaders have done. You read through the Bible and you see numerous people who, who did horrible things, and there is nothing more horrible than what takes place, place in these chapters. But here are men who were so bent on getting rid of Jesus that they sought liars. Religious men sought liars. They had no concern for right, decency, law, but to further their cause. Adam Clark wrote these words, what a prostitution of justice. They first resolved to ruin him and then seek the proper, me proper means of effecting it. They declare him criminal and after that do all they can to fix some crime upon him that they may appear to have some shadow of justice on their side when they put him to death. It seems to have been a common custom of this vile court to employ false witnesses on any occasion to answer their own ends. Does anyone know of a biblical example of when that took place a little bit later on? Okay. <laughs> okay, but even before that? Yeah, Bef before, before Paul? Stephen? So this was like kind of a practice of these, and, and so much for the innocent until proven guilty philosophy. And wow, there are so many ties to our day today. Um, you know, these spiritual men, the issue was not, is he guilty? For these spiritual men, it's let's prove what we know and be done with it. 
They had already declared his guilt. Okay, I'm going to say Gavin Floyd, anyone? There's no way to get a fair trial. There was no way to get a fair trial in Jesus' day. So understand this has been going on in history for thousands and thousands of years. Because, because there are wicked men and there are, there are wicked liars who are willing to support them. Uh, the next thing, they try to sentence him without proof. In verses 63 to 66, Jesus held his peace. He didn't answer any of their accusations. And we come in verse 63, and the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tellest whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Now, Jesus had the answer. Why? Because Jesus had been silent. He stood before his accusers silent all along. In fact, Pilate marveled about that, and later on, on, he remained silent. Okay, why did Jesus answer here? I know this really isn't a trick question. Think about it. It's not because the high priest was speaking, because from every indication, all the leaders of the council have been speaking all along and asking him questions and making accusations, and he didn't answer. So why did he answer here? They were asking for the, for the truth, but how did he do it? Look at it. How did the high priest do it? What? Okay, but how did the high priest do it? How did he present it? When he came and said, I want to know that you're son of God, how did he do it? What did he say first? I adjure you what? By the living God. Jesus had to answer. Why? Because he made the appeal through the Father. And for him not to answer would have been wrong. He had to answer. And what is interesting is that his answer did not condemn him. They twisted it. He spoke what he had to because he was the appeal was from God the Father. And so Christ answers and he says, Thou hast said. In essence, saying uh, that's the truth. And, and here's, here's the fact, it was the truth. He was the Son of God. And um, his answer um, was, uh, was amazing because it still made them sentence him without any proof at all. But it was an answer given because the father was appealed to and Jesus was obligated as the son of God to answer. They tried to sentence him without proof. Then if you look in verses 67 and 68, What happened? What what happened? What'd they do? They spit on him? You know, they hit him? Um, uh, The buffet him, that would be with fists, then with open hand, palms of their hand. And then they said, prophesy thou Christ. They mocked him. They mistreated an innocent man. They mistreat, they mistreat or mistreated an innocent man. And please understand this. This This is a new low here, okay? Here are the religious people of the day, the highly respected Jews of the day, the men who should have known better and done better, who knew better but didn't care. 
chapter 27 and verse 1, it says, When the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. They focused on evil rather than doing right. They focused on evil rather than doing right. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, do you know what good Jews were doing on that day, that morning, and throughout that day? Does anyone know what they would have been doing? Preparing for the Passover. Any Jew, good Jew would have been preparing for the Passover. It was the preparation. I think it's in 27. Let me see if I can find it real quickly. 20, 62, now the next day that followed the day of the preparation, the chief priests and the, and the Pharisees came together in the Pilate. So it was the day before. It was the day of preparation. So what should Jews have been doing? What should the chief priests have been doing? Uh, okay, in, in our vernacular, and, and this is incorrect, so don't go twisting it and saying that. They would have been getting ready for church on Sunday. You understand what I'm, I'm saying here? Get ready for worship because there was preparation to do. You know why? Because they weren't supposed to work on that day. You say, well, they had servants to take care of it, Probably but any good Jew should have been doing something differently. But they were more focused on evil uh, rather than on doing that which is right. And They were so jealous of Jesus, they gave their energy to destroy him rather than give their energy to worship God and prepare for the most important celebration that a Jew had in that day, the Passover. Again, the more I read through this passage and think these things through, the more I marvel at how evil these men truly were. Look in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 27, where we find this, And the chief priests took the silver pieces and said, It's not lawful for uh, to put them into the treasury. This is when uh, Judas came and, and threw down those, uh, the, 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 threw down the 30 pieces of silver. And they say it's the price of blood. They took counsel. They bought uh, with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. And they reveal their hypocrisy. These men acting contrary to the law and following their sinful heart, which violated the Ten Commandments, seek and seek to have Jesus killed, but they're concerned that the money given as the price of blood couldn't be put in the treasury. And I, you know, I wrote this in my notes. Are you serious? I mean, really, in comparison, is that a big deal? Come on. I mean, it's like, you know, it, it, it would be like, I don't know. I, here's this huge body of, of, of law and truth, and here's this little minute detail. And they're all concerned about this minute detail and leaving off the weightier matters of the law. It's, it's an amazing thing. All writers rightfully condemn this act of hypocrisy. Joseph Benson wrote these words. These arch hypocrites, says Baxter, make conscience of ceremony and make no conscience of perjury, persecution, and murdering the innocent. Blood they thirst for and will give money to pro procure it, but the price of blood must not be consecrated. They scruple not to give money to procure the shedding of blood, but scruple the putting that money into the treasury. They're afraid to defile the treasury, but not afraid to pollute their souls. In chapter 27, verses 12 and 13, as he's standing before Pilate, in verse 11, we find the governor He's asked the question, are you the king of the Jews? And he was accused of the chief priests and elders. Or when, and when he was accused, he answered, nothing. Then said Pilate unto him, hearest thou not how many things they witness against thee? Um, they accused him without cause. The charges had to be fabricated because none could, were valid. Jesus was the sinless son of God. Uh, one of the accusations revealed in John 19, 12 is that he made himself a king, and that was against Caesar. They said Jesus committed treason, but this man said himself, you render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. 
You did not commit treason. Never did. They accused him without cause. Look at chapter 27, 17, and 18. And what do we learn about, about them, these people? Therefore, when they were gathered together, these, these uh, religious ru rulers, Pilate said unto him, Whom will ye that I release unto you, Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ? Why did Pilate do that? Verse 18. Tell me. Okay, look, this was not about right. This is about envy. They envy him. They envied him. Pilate had listened to all of their accusations, and he's concluded that these religious men delivered Jesus out of envy, not because there was any wrongdoing. And what he does in verse 17 is priceless. Here's this ruler. He, he understands the score here. He knows that all these men have a, have a vendetta. They're envious. He knows this man has done nothing. And so he, if he would, he pulls a fast one on the Jews. He does that later on when he, when he puts the accusation, this is the king of the Jews. That was a mockery of the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees. It wasn't so much a mockery of, of Jesus Christ, although it was. And by the way, he, he was the king of the Jews, and he's the king of kings. But uh, Pilate was all about getting these guys back, and verse 17 is all about that. You know, Barabbas is all about Pilate getting these, sticking it to these guys because he knew, first of all, that these men hated Barabbas. He knew that these men would want Barabbas killed because of his actions and his deeds. He knew as well that if he was going to get this man, Jesus, off, which wasn't going to happen because it was in the plan of the Father for him to die, but if he was going to get him off, it was going to have to happen. Someone was going to have to be put up there that the people would not want to see freed. Let me, let me tell you, as best we understand, Barabbas had to be the worst of the worst as far as the Jews were concerned. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been the one that was put up as if you would collateral. All right, make your decision, men. You want this guy to go free? Oh, man. Could you, I don't know. Can you see this guy saying, oh, man, we know what he's doing. We know what you're doing, Pilate. Yeah, Barabbas or Jesus? Choose one. It was all, it was all out of envy. Envy is a terrible sin that destroys people from the inside. It'll lead people to do evil things. What Jesus had, they could not get. He was popular among the people because he told them the truth. Because he loved them. A writer said this, this was envy at his popularity. He drew away the people from them. This pilot understood, probably, from his knowledge of the pride and ambition of the rulers, and from the fact that no danger could arise from a, peer, a person that appeared like Jesus. And the same writer said this, if Pilate knew this, he was bound to release him himself. As a governor and judge, he was under obligation to protect the innocent, and he didn't. And so the guilt falls on Pilate, yes, but the guilt falls on these men, religious, respected Jewish leaders, they envy him. They persuade people to fulfill their selfish end, or they persuade, they persuaded the people to fulfill their selfish end. Look at verse 20. Because when he was set down in the judgment seat, his wife sent a message unto him. And, and Pilate's, Pilate, you know, has to live with she says, don't have anything to do with this just man. And uh, the chief priest, uh, or Pilate then, he's trying to still work this all out. 
He's trying to make himself look good and, and make these guys look bad. And so he presents to the people, Barabbas or Jesus? And let me tell you something. It, 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 it's evident that they would have chosen Barabbas to die. Jesus was popular. So how did it all happen? Let me tell you why it happened. Because supposedly good men did evil things. And look at what it says in verse 20. What did, what did they do? Yep. They persuaded the people to fulfill their selfish end. The people would want Barabbas punished. Jesus was doing so much good. I, I mean, I, can you imagine anyone that, that had a brother who was healed of leprosy? Yelling, crucify him! No, get rid of Barabbas. It's caused all sorts of problems for us. We hate him. But the, the religious leaders, the one, the respected leaders, wow, they want us to call for his crucifixion. Um, we find in chapter 27, verses 41 to 44, they mock the Son of God. They mock the Son of God. Um, look at that, if you would, verse 41. Likewise, also of the chief priests, yes, they were there, mocking him with the scribes and elders. All of them. Here's the thing. Scribes, chief priests, and elders would have had nothing to do with the common people. In fact, they accused Jesus of sitting with sinners. So who else was mocking Jesus? Crowd, the th thieves on the cross were mocking Jesus. I, I still can't figure that one out. You're, you're dying, and you're there making fun of another guy dying. It boggles my imagination. Does, does it not you? I think I'd be more concerned about myself or something or whatever, but they cast the same in his teeth, the scriptures say. Later on, one comes to himself, and he understands that Jesus is the Son of God. I don't know what, what happened exactly, what event it was, but something changed his mind, and he gets saved. Wonderful thing, and God offered him pardon. But these men, who would have nothing to do with thieves and who would not have nothing to do with the common people, were all with the common people then. Yeah, it's fine to be with them then and join with the crowd because <laughs> this is our chance uh, to mock the Son of God. Uh, in verses 62 to 66, they dishonored the Sabbath. They conduct business on a day intended for worship. And I think at this point, nothing would surprise me. But consider the gall for a priest to take time from his responsibilities on the Sabbath to make sure a tomb is not robbed. Think, people. I don't want someone to come in and steal a dead body. So who cares if my job is to be at the temple and take care of the preaching and read the word of God? I got to get on down and take care of this matter to make sure the dead guy isn't taken away. Amazing. They dishonor the Sabbath. And then in chapter 28, we'll, we'll end here. They instigate a cover-up in verses 11 to 15. Rather than realize that something truly amazing happened, because the guards came, and you know what the guards told them? Exactly what happened. What? Earthquake! Bright light! We fell down! They did dead away! And the next thing we knew when we woke up, the stone had been rolled away, and the body's gone. Don't you think that there should have been someone saying, something amazing happened here? And yet we don't have that. We have, oh, we don't want this to get out. Let me give you some money. Um, they cover up the truth. They defame the disciples who claim he rose from the dead and promised to support men and protect them if they would lie. And they pay hush money. Okay, but um, 
these chapters just help us see and understand the depravity of the human heart, how wicked it truly is. And honestly, we don't look at that when we look at this story because we want to focus rightfully on Jesus Christ. But they teach us an important lesson, and they teach us something we need to learn. It shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us when religious people do wicked things because the human heart will take you a lot further than you could ever imagine. And may we understand that, and may we live in light of that. You know, Christians are to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. There are a lot of lessons to be learned from, from even this study. Yes, it is a valuable study. But one of the things is that as Christians, we shouldn't have our heads in the sand. We shouldn't be ignorant to the fact that there are wicked people. There are wicked people in office right now that are, that are seeking to destroy Christianity and hinder the work of God. And they will make laws to do such. And if they do, let me, let me tell you that God's still in control. And as Christians, we need to be alert to those, that fact. And if we can do something about it, we ought. If we can't, we still need to serve God and do what's right. And uh, this passage and these men teach us a number of things about just the, the, the human nature that a lot of times we just don't want to admit and we don't see. Quite honestly, it's even in ourselves unless we let God have his way in our lives. So we may take some time, some other time to finish the lesson, the outline, but I hope that you at least were challenged by this and saw some things that maybe you'd never seen before in the crucifixion story. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes and close in a word of prayer. Thank you.